Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a computer scientist and pioneer in our understanding of AI and its future relationship with humans. We still have a lot of research to do to produce all of the new algorithms to replace the old way of doing things. But I think the economic incentive is there because people want to avoid the kinds of failures that we will start to see if we build systems the old way. That was Stuart Russell, professor of computer science and engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of a new book, Human Compatible, Artificial Intelligence and the Problem of Control. He's been a guest on the show before, and I was delighted that he was able to return to discuss some of the ideas in his new book, on superhuman AI and how we can ensure that humans are the ones who control the algorithms and not the other way around. Now, lots of people are very dismissive of the idea that we will ever achieve superhuman artificial intelligence. The most optimistic perhaps say that it's 10 years away. The most pessimistic say never. But you say it's worth asking the question, what happens if we succeed? Why do you think that's a question worth asking now? If we succeed in creating superhuman AI, that would be an earthquake-sized event in human history, possibly the biggest event in human history, because it changes civilization completely. There's also the risk that if we're not prepared, we will lose control. We're creating things that are intrinsically more powerful than us, and we need to somehow maintain power over them forever. If we don't know how to do that, then we could be in trouble. Can you just spell out why do you think this would be the most significant event in human history? Because our civilization itself is just the product of our intelligence. That's what gives us power over the earth, over other species, and the ability to create everything that we've created. So if we have access to substantially more intelligence, it becomes a completely new game. Our civilization can be far better than it is right now. We have access then to essentially a free source of wealth creation. Everything becomes a service, Uh, a little bit like search engines are a service, except it's everything. You need a new school for your village. You need a new road. You prefer to upgrade your house. All of these things become services. So it entirely changes the dynamic of the world where we've been competing over resources and status. Fighting over those things becomes like fighting over copies of a digital newspaper. Why would you do that? Because you can just make more of them. So we would move from a world of scarcity to radical abundance. If things go well, yes. If things go poorly, we may move to the exit, so to speak. So we have to be prepared for this. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing claims now from within the AI community, which are unprecedented, that it's impossible to achieve human-level AI, is that people are suddenly afraid that we might, and they don't want to talk about the risks. You'd be pretty shocked if a cancer biologist, you know, leading cancer researcher, got up and said, oh, you know what, we've been fooling you all along. We're never going to cure cancer. It's impossible. That would be absolutely incredible for that to happen. And yet we have senior AI researchers standing up and saying, we're never going to achieve human-level AI, despite that being the long-term goal of the field. And at a time when we're making massive strides and a time when there's enormous investment and 
thousands of incredibly smart people moving into the field. Why would you get up and say, all of a sudden, it's not going to work? So how do your colleagues react to you saying something different to them? So what I found is that if they take the time to sit down and listen and to get past their sort of knee-jerk defensive denialism, they will tend to agree that we are making progress. It's hard to say when we're going to achieve human-level AI. And it's not as if there's a linear scale of intelligence and we're sort of, you know, we're at 82, we're going to cross 100 soon and then get to 200. AI systems obviously already exceed human capacities in some narrow dimensions, and we're going to be adding dimensions, and those dimensions are going to get broader. So we might, for example, see systems that can read and understand anything in any human language. When that happens, they'll read everything the human race has ever written in a short period of time, but they still might not be able to plan their way out of a paper bag. Hmm. So they'll have a superhuman capability for reading, understanding, and answering questions, but uh, they'll lack you know, completely another important functioning capability for the real world. So we'll, we'll add these pieces one by one, but when we have all the pieces, we'll have super intelligent general purpose AI. Now, you describe in the book that we're still several conceptual breakthroughs away from ever hoping to achieve that. Yep. Could you just spell out for us a bit what those conceptual breakthroughs are? I mean, where is the leading edge of computer science at the moment? What are the big problems that still need to be tackled to get there? So one of the big open problems, and I think this would be essential for a superintelligent system to absorb human knowledge, it has to be done through reading. And at the moment, there is something called machine reading, but it's fairly weak in its ability. So it can pull out simple facts. You know, I can read newspaper articles and discover that, you know, Elvis Presley was born in some Tupelo, Kansas, I think, and very simple facts like that. But there's a huge gap between that and reading a whole series of university physics books and then understanding physics well enough to design a new way of detecting black holes, for example. So we are a long way from that. And in fact, I would say the present interest in deep learning is a little bit of a digression from that goal because the deep learning systems don't take advantage of explicitly represented knowledge and they're not a form in which such knowledge can be stored and represented and extracted from text. So people are pursuing other approaches that have been around in classical AI for decades to try to solve this knowledge extraction, representation, reasoning problem. But you can't see any reason why that cannot be solved at some point? No, there's no in-principle reason. I think, in fact, some of the fundamental mathematical advances that I think we need to do this have been made over the last decade or two. Knowledge of this kind, let's say knowledge of physics, requires a, an expressive formal language, meaning a, a formal language in which complicated things can be written down relatively concisely. And we've always understood that mathematical logic has the capacity to represent this kind of information, but it's very hard to interface mathematical logic, which requires absolute precision, to the real world, which is messy and ambiguous and noisy. Whether that information comes from text or from cameras, there's always a lot of uncertainty about what it really means. So there's no way to directly connect mathematical logic representations to the real world. But we now understand how to add uncertainty in the form of probability theory to mathematical logic so that we have the best of both worlds. And I think this is going to be a tool 
it's a field that's growing exponentially fast now to solve some of these problems. Now, one of the other responses in the industry, I guess, is that, well, this is all very well as a philosophical debating point, and maybe it's the second half of the 21st century problem, but we have specific challenges presented by narrow AI at the moment, whether it's lethal autonomous weapon systems or disinformation pumped out by algorithms on social media. And I know that you've been very vocal in these areas as well. What are the problems that we ought to be worrying about today in terms of AI? So I think you've put your finger on two of them. Autonomous weapons are probably the most urgent because the technology is already for sale. While the Russian ambassador is saying, we don't need to worry about this for another 30 years, this is all science fiction, out the back door they're selling autonomous weapons in Russia, they're selling them in Turkey. These are weapons that can go out by themselves, find human beings and kill them. I believe there was one company, is it Cargo, you've been talking about? Uh, yeah, so STM is the company, Cargo is the name of their product, and they advertise it as capable of autonomous hit, uh, anti-personnel weapon with human figure tracking and face recognition. So, in other words, you could program a drone to recognize somebody's face and send it off to assassinate them, and you could do that on a mass scale. Yeah, so it could be an identified person with a photograph, or it could just be, you know, find anyone matching such and such a description, whether it's uh, ethnic group or uniform or age, gender, whatever it might be. How do we stop that happening? We need a treaty, I believe, a treaty with teeth, with verification enforcement mechanisms. And there are, I think there are reasonable arguments about where exactly you draw the line. But I found in discussions across the spectrum from people who you know, are in the military working on development programs and all the way to peace activists that the mass anti-personnel weapon, the kind of weapon where you could release 10 million of these weapons in the middle of London and have them just fan out and wipe out everyone meeting the criteria, that type of weapon is unacceptable. It's a weapon of mass destruction that's far more likely to be used than nuclear weapons and potentially much more dangerous than a nuclear weapon. So nobody seems to think that that's a good idea. And yet those are the weapons that are on sale. So I think we could get a ban on those. There are other arguments about whether you want autonomous fighter aircraft and submarines, which are not going to be used by the tens of millions, probably because they're too expensive. But at the very least, we need to ban these swarm anti-personnel weapons. Returning to the issue of superhuman AI, you're arguing in the book that it is possible to design provably beneficial AI systems to exert control over a superintelligent system. Could you explain how you can go about doing that? Let me begin by explaining what I think the problem is with superintelligent systems. So I've talked about how they might herald a golden era for humankind, but also we may lose control because the way we currently build systems, which in the book I call the standard model, which is a phrase borrowed from physics, is that we build machinery that optimizes a fixed objective. And then for any particular situation, we supply that objective, and then the machine goes off and does its thing. And this is a design meme, if you like, that's been around for a long time in many different disciplines. Control theory uses this. They have what they call a cost function that the control algorithm minimizes so that the airplane stays on its assigned trajectory. Operations research people who organize logistics and airplane schedules and so on maximize a sum of rewards. That's how they express the objective function. Economists talk about maximizing welfare or utility or, in the case of corporations, 
maximizing profit. So it's a pretty much pervasive part of how our world works that we set up these objectives and then we have machinery that optimizes. And the problem is, what if it's the wrong objective? And invariably, it is the wrong objective. And we've known this for thousands of years, right? So King Midas got his objective wrong. He didn't really want everything to turn to gold that he touched, but that's what he got because that's what he asked for. And that's just the problem that we face if we design AI systems this way, that the third wish is always, please undo the first two wishes because I got them wrong. But there may be no third wish if you, for example, ask the machine, let's say it's a climate control system and you ask it to restore carbon dioxide levels to their pre-industrial concentrations, put the climate back in balance, and that's your first wish. And the system says, well, okay, best way to do that, get rid of all the humans who are producing the carbon dioxide. It's okay, well, my second wish actually, please restore, if you get a second wish, please restore the carbon dioxide levels without killing anybody. And then the system works out that it could do that by gently and subtly and invisibly persuading through social engineering people to have fewer and fewer children until there are none of us left. And then, again, we don't really have a third wish at that point. And so you can always imagine ways that things might go wrong, but you can't imagine all of the ways that things might go wrong. And this has been shown over and over again. And arguably, if you think of the fossil fuel industry as an AI system, we set it up with this objective of maximizing its profit, and it's won. And that's why we're in such a pickle. Could you expand on that? I mean, you think the fossil fuel industry, in a way, is a proto-superhuman intelligence? It's a machine that optimizes a fixed objective, namely shareholder return, discounted according to a certain schedule that isn't the time schedule of the human race. And so it has been very successful. It's a machine that has human components, but it functions as a machine and the components are replaceable, and the objective is still in place. And I think we would agree that it's outwitted the rest of the human race because it's sort of a super intelligent entity. It has an effective way, and this is, I think, one of the amazing things about corporations is that they are effective ways of binding people together to achieve objectives in ways that are impossible for individuals or loosely coupled groups of people. They somehow through their organization and internal communication processes, create more intelligence out of a group of people. As a computer scientist, how would you rewrite the software of the fossil fuel industry to optimize better preferences? In a way, this is not a new idea. An economist would say, oh, well, you know, clearly the failure here in specifying the objective was that you forgot to include the externalities. And so there ought to be a cost for the things that you Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. I didn't mention that the system is changing. So if you know what those are, then you can add them in. And now you've got an objective that's more aligned with the objective of the rest of the human race. 
But the argument is that you can't do that perfectly. You might think, oh yeah, and I, I don't want you to kill people, and I don't want you to do this. And we've developed legal codes over thousands of years to add in a lot of these considerations so that when people are behaving in their own best interest, they don't go around killing people to make more money and so on. At least most of them don't, because we've imposed a cost on that. And so you get behavior that's aligned. But with superintelligent systems, they will find new ways to do things that we never imagined were possible, such as convincing the whole human race not to have any more children. And so we can't pre-design correctly for all the externalities that might be caused. But in a way, you want to design a very humble form of AI that keeps on checking back with the humans that they're on the right path to optimization. Is that right? Yeah. So there's two parts to this. One is to recognize that the information the AI system has about the objective is partial, and there's a great deal of uncertainty about all the rest. And then to understand how should it behave given this information. And the important thing is that it knows that it's the human preferences that matter, and we know more about those. We may not be able to explicate them, and we may be uncertain about our own future reactions to things we haven't yet experienced, so we have genuine uncertainty about our own preferences. But when you set this up as a mathematical problem, the humans have the preferences, the AI systems have to satisfy those preferences, but they have a priori uncertainty about what they are. So you can set that up as a mathematical problem. It's a two-player game, if I describe it that way. The solutions to that problem involve the AI system doing things like asking permission. The human has an incentive actually to teach the AI about their preferences. And as a result, you get a coupled system that ends up being beneficial to the human. So the human is better off in this coupled system with this type of machine than they would be without the machine. In your book, you also describe how we're actually very bad as humans at expressing our own preferences. And you have this wonderful example of a phrase called wireheading. Could you explain what that means? Because that's surely a big problem in designing provably beneficial AI if we don't actually know what is beneficial to ourselves. So wireheading is a phrase that has arisen in the community to describe some experiments that were done in the 60s, initially with animals and then with humans, where you connect a wire to the region in the brain that we call, crudely speaking, the pleasure center. And then you give the organism access to a button that sends a current down that wire and produces a pleasurable sensation. And unfortunately, the way the brain works, once you have access to that, you keep pressing that button until you die. <laughs> you will literally die of starvation or thirst. You won't eat, you won't drink, you won't move out of your chair you'll just be pressing the button. So with humans, they have to terminate these experiments, but the human would continue just like the animal does. And so it's a system that evolution has built into us to give us a guidepost about what's good and bad in the world, you know, avoid pain, eat things that taste nice. It's a rough guidepost to survival, but it's not a perfect guidepost to survival. And this experiment shows that imperfection very clearly. And so one of the ways that AI systems can fail is that if they're designed to actually satisfy human preferences and they have the ability to modify human preferences, then rather than satisfy the preferences you have, mm -hmm. uh, they modify your preferences so that they're easier to satisfy. Or they could even perhaps 
take advantage of this bug in your brain directly. So you don't want solutions where everyone is on a heroin drip or something like that. Even though the people who are on the heroin drip will say, please don't take me off it. I like this. I want to stay on this forever. A priori, we don't want that for our future. And so we have to be quite careful when we set up the AI systems that we don't fall prey to these kinds of failure modes, which might be much more subtle than putting people on heroin drips. But it could be a slow process of just modifying our society in ways that make us easy to please using what's easy for the machine to do. Now, if we're going to have a conceptual revolution in AI in the way that you argue for in the book, we really need the big tech companies to get with the program, don't we? We need them to help redesign AI in ways that are embedded in products and services that we use. What are the chances of that happening, do you think? So I think there is a strong economic incentive to get it right, because the failure modes that we're seeing, for example, if you look at social media content selection, the algorithms there, roughly speaking, are designed to optimize click-through or eyeball time. And in the process of doing that, just very simple reinforcement learning algorithms have a very unfortunate side effect, which is that rather than learning what you like to look at, they change you so that they can predict what you like to look at by making you into a more predictable automaton, which seems, I think, to mean making you into an extremist of some kind, whether it's a violence addict or an extreme right-wing conspiracy theorist or a left-wing conspiracy theorist or whatever it might be. If they can find a place on the spectrum where they can predict you better, they will push you there. So the machines are stripping us of free will and therefore messing with our preferences. I think that's right. I think this is another example of a missing piece of the objective, this externality that the systems are polluting human minds, if you like, rather than the atmosphere. And it's very hard to charge for that, right? You can put a tax on carbon dioxide. You can't easily put a tax on perverse opinions that your clients gradually assume. But the fossil fuel industry is a good example of your saying where uh, it is optimized for shareholder returns. Well, surely big tech is the same, isn't it? I mean, it's operating on the same capitalist imperative. Yes. And so one of the reasons people worry about superintelligent AI is that it's hard to imagine how you could switch it off if it's doing something wrong. You've given it some objective. It's pursuing that objective. Very difficult to switch off because it's already anticipated any way you might try to switch it off. Well, that's already happened with the fossil fuel companies, right? We found ourselves unable to switch them off, unable even to impose a tax on carbon dioxide, for example. And these simple algorithms running within the social media platforms themselves are not smart enough to protect themselves against being switched off. But they're operating within this super intelligent machine, namely the corporation, which is very smart and is very hard to switch off. So we need to find out how to impose regulation on the way the software itself works. So I think here you can't tax perversion of opinions. I think it'd be extremely hard to figure that out. But I think you could look at the way the software is designed. And in fact, there are ways of designing the software that won't deliberately manipulate opinions. It's the reinforcement learning algorithm that has figured out how to modify you by sending you a sequence of content that gradually pushes you to one place on the spectrum. You can avoid that with a different kind of learning algorithm called a supervised learning algorithm, which simply learns what it is you like, and then it can send you more of that. So that has its own problems, but not nearly as severe. So just as the FDA has a certain methodology that they've developed to make sure, mostly, that drugs are 
not dangerous and do what they're supposed to do, we, I think, could have a regulatory layer that insists that algorithms that face the public in certain ways conform to certain design standards that don't have these side effects. So you'd like, really, a federal drug administration for algorithms, as it were? That is, in fact, the title of an op-ed piece that I wrote a few weeks ago, yes. One other different model of developing AI is being developed in China at the moment. Is that inherently a more optimistic way of applying AI, or is it, in fact, a more dystopian application of it in the way that they are using facial recognition to identify and target populations? There's no doubt that, at present, the biggest AI market in China is national security, and uh, that's internal national security. So this is, I think, a serious problem. The surveillance issue, of course, we understand that's a huge infringement on rights. The social credit system is, I would say, yet another example of setting up a fixed objective. And then, of course, you're setting yourself up for failure when that objective turns out to be wrong. Could you explain briefly what that is? So the social credit system is a way of measuring. It's a little bit like the credit scores that you get from credit bureaus in Europe and the U.S., but it covers a much wider range of behavior. So you get bonus points for visiting your elderly parents. You get negative points for reading things that the state doesn't particularly like, for being friends with people that the state doesn't particularly like, and so on. So there's a whole panoply of pluses and minuses that are intended to generate a well-ordered, harmonious society. But if you set that up as the objective, you get what's called Goodhart's Law, which is that anytime you use a metric in order to encourage some underlying objective, you end up optimizing the metric, not the underlying objective. So you might have people visiting their elderly parents, but only to improve their credit score. And both parties know that that's why they're doing it. So it completely vitiates the point of visiting your elderly parents in the first place. And the other interesting point about this is that the social credit score is a single metric. So it's asking everyone to conform in the same way. But that's not how society works. Society works from having a wide variety of people who participate in their own way, rather than trying to optimize the same metric of desirable behavior. And so I think you could end up with a very dysfunctional system as a result. Now, we've gone through some very scary territory from killer robots to wireheading to social credit systems. But your book ends on really quite an optimistic note. You're saying that you think it is possible to produce provably beneficial AI. Tell us why you're optimistic. How can we make sure that this ends up in a good place? So the underlying idea is that we make machines not according to the standard model where we give them fixed objectives, but machines whose purpose is to benefit humans, but machines that know that they don't know exactly what that means. And that creates this unbreakable linkage between machines and humans where the machine can't do what it needs to do without, for example, asking permission so that it doesn't accidentally do something bad, asking more about the areas of human preferences where it's less certain. And, you know, we see simple examples of this already. You know, you go online to book a flight. Some systems allow you to express a preference between aisle seats and window seats. And that's a little tiny example, but of course, the problem is much, much larger than that. And um, in the extreme case, and I think this is sort of the core of what we mean by control over intelligent systems, is can you switch it off? 
and a system that knows that it doesn't understand the full panoply of human preferences will allow itself to be switched off because it doesn't want to do whatever it is that would cause the human to switch you off. Whereas a machine with a fixed objective actually believes that it's doing the right thing. And so it will resist any attempt to switch it off because that, of course, would result in failure. So it's a completely different repertoire of behaviors that comes out when you design AI systems this way. So we still have a lot of research to do to produce all of the new algorithms and software templates and so on to replace the old way of doing things. But I think the incentive, the economic incentive is there because people want to avoid the kinds of failures that we will start to see if we build systems the old way. So in the book, I refer to, you know, it's a not particularly serious example, but it illustrates the point. If you have a domestic robot that's supposed to be running your household and you're late home from work and it's supposed to feed the kids and there's no food in the fridge and it can calculate nutritional values for things like the cat and decides that um, that would be a fine solution to the problem and cooks the cat for dinner because it doesn't happen to have the sentimental value of the cat factored into its fixed objective, then that would be global headlines instantly. That would be the end of the domestic robot industry because no one would want such a thing in their house that could make that kind of mistake because who knows what else it might do. So there's a strong economic interest then among all of the potential domestic robot manufacturers to build their systems in ways that don't have this failure mode, that are much more robust and deferential to humans and would at least ask permission before cooking the cat if they weren't sure about whether it had sentimental value to you. So I think that there's actually a nice alignment of interest here between those of us who are saying we have to solve this problem to avoid this long-term issue of control over AI systems and even the relatively short-term economic interest. If you think that you're going to build an intelligent personal assistant that you know lives on your cell phone and helps you manage all your daily activities, it has to adapt to your individual preferences and the context of your life and how you want things to turn out. And it has to know, at least out of the box, that it doesn't know what all of those preferences are. Don't cook the cat. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Stuart. You've given us a huge amount to think about. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love.